Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, the best paragraph I read comes from The Atlantic in probably the most fascinating article I've read in a while. It deals with the anxiety crisis that America is experiencing among its young children. The article just cites that from 2007 to 2017, between 12 and 17 year olds, we've seen an eight to 13% increase in students who report having a major depressive episode. That's basically two to 2.3 million more students are doing this. The statistics said that one in five girls have experienced a depressive episode. And this whole article just goes into so many different directions about anxiety and they try to get to the root cause of it. Here's the best paragraph that I read. The childhood mental health crisis risks becoming self-perpetuating. The worse that the numbers get about our kids' mental health, the more anxiety, depression, and suicide increase. The more fearful parents become. The more fearful parents become, the more they continue to do the things that are inadvertently contributing to these problems. What did you think about the article? Do you have any opening thoughts? point that is not the parents' fault is made heavily in the article, but yet it seems that we as parents and our behaviors are making these anxieties worse. And everything we do and the more effort we put in, the worse it gets. What's interesting about this article is it looks at it from the parent perspective, from the kid perspective. It tries to talk about where does anxiety come from. It says that some people seem to be just genetically wired to have more anxiety tendencies than other people. And yet it also seems to explore the idea of how those anxieties can be brought out. And in the modern age, they, they refer to the modern age a lot. They kind of talk a lot about how parenting is really bringing anxiety to the surface. I've thought oftentimes, I've said on our very podcast, that the most of the time that I'm doing a bad job as a parent is when I'm sitting down. I'm not actively involved. So if I stand up and go get in the mix, then I can stop the problem. And it's my laziness. But this is the exact type of mentality that's causing the problem. We parents are just getting in there and doing everything for our kids. And as we do so, we just create more problems. And they run on and on. And as I read the article, I think of many things that I've done that are not as extreme as what we found in the article, but that are creating problems for my kids in that I'm accommodating them and their concerns and worries. And as I do that, it doesn't make the worries go away. My wife and I, multiple times in this article, found ourselves nodding our heads about our parenting methods and how, as you just mentioned, we, we try to step in. We try to solve a lot of minor problems for our kids. We usually try to rush in. We don't want them to feel sadness. It was amazing about how they talked about sort of the taking a back seat to letting your kids figure things out. You and I are obviously both parents and teachers, and we see this a lot in our classroom sometimes with how kids behave. I've noticed the idea of anxiety is a word that the first half of my teaching career, I don't know if I ever heard it or if anybody ever told me their student is suffering from anxiety. But I feel like in the second half of my career, I hear the word all the time. It's a word where students get sent to the office now sometimes because they're having a hard time getting through their school day. It's a word that my wife and I sometimes use with our own children about how they're feeling or about what's maybe going on in their lives. If anything, this article definitely comes right out and says, this is a problem nationwide. It's amazing how many times I was just nodding my head, agreeing with what I was reading. The way we handle it is making it worse. And so I thought it was really interesting that the article mentioned anxiety is the first thing, and it develops on average around age 11, but it is the gateway to all other mental disorders. 
OCD, everything else. It's not that just your kid's terrified of dogs at 10 or eight or seven. It's that what does that become when they're 12, 14, 16? And the anxiety about anything makes them much more vulnerable to further mental disorders. What I also appreciated about this article is it came right out with the question about screens and technology, right? You and I are old enough now to sort of blame whatever things or whatever weaknesses we see in the, in the next generation. And, oh, they just had their phones out too much. That's what's causing it. And what was amazing was they cited the studies that said, look, there seems to be little correlation between screens and anxiety. If anything, if you take away the phones of an anxious student, sometimes that might be their only way to connect with other people. And now you're taking away their only form of connection. I did find it interesting where they said, well, there could be a strong correlation between people with strong amounts of anxiety and the phone is used as a, as a way to avoid the world or to avoid their problems. The internet makes it too easy to kind of get sucked into the next Netflix show and not really deal with their problems. But they didn't just come out and say, anxiety happens because of phones. And I just thought that was sort of interesting. That kind of changed my perspective because I've always wanted to take kind of a lazy intellectual approach and just say, yeah, it's just the phones, too many video games. And that doesn't seem to be the case. And they did that right in the beginning of the article because the article began and I thought, anxiety, got it. Okay, yes, this is a problem. Oh, it's probably the phones. But, and then I get very early in the article, it says it's not the phones. I was like, oh, wow, it's not the phones. And that the enemies are isolation and accommodation is the way that I read the article. When students are isolated and children are isolated, they feel vulnerable. And that's what leads to anxiety and leads to worse problems. And the worst of all is the kids have stopped going to school because they're so anxious. And now they're totally, it just reinforces their anxiety because now they can have everything they need at home and their parents often accommodate them. And they're really in a bad situation. So the phones and the social media actually gives them less anxiety because they're more engaged with other people. After reading that, I did the unthinkable and we're letting our children play Fortnite because we are isolated without it because that's what all their friends are doing. And now they're on with six, eight friends. Now they're on in our living room right next to our kitchen so we can hear what they're doing and hopefully not bullying and doing all sorts of other things. But it is the isolation that you really have to fear. And I really knocked my socks off when I read that part of the article. I feel like you should do a YouTube ad for Fortnite. Maybe you should apologize to them and say that I'm trying to decrease my child's anxiety, so therefore I'm gonna let them play Fortnite. And while they are connecting with their friends, they'll also be hunting each other down. Yeah, yeah, well, I've watched uh, Hunger Games, so you know it's kind of the same thing. But it, it is in this weird little world we're living in right now, maybe being engaged with other kids is better than not being engaged, even if it is on the screen. Now, their time is limited and so forth, but yes, perhaps I do need to apologize to Fortnite. But I, I do wanna hit on what, something you said earlier in that you and your wife do not want to see your child upset. And I remember vividly, my wife and I were at our, her cousin's house. Her little niece was kind of dismissive to Colin when he was like three. And he just looked crestfallen and his face just fell. And we were both like, oh, he's so sad. Oh, what can we do to ease this? Of course we couldn't. And he's learned to deal with disappointment and frustration and those have been growing experiences. But we can't, and we have to let them deal with that. Now, I wonder what my parents would have done in 1978 or 9 when I was that age, when I was crestfallen for the first time, when somebody didn't want to play with me or hang out with me. What did they do? Did they just have a cigarette and a little glass of whiskey and just be like, ah, they're fine? 
or they're better off than I was. They don't get beat. What's the difference? What are we doing wrong here as our generation? You make a great point about the past. And I realize that as we always look at the past, there's always the rose-colored goggles on there and everything always looks perfect. But I do remember this, and I talk about this with my wife and other friends often. I just remember being about five years old and walking around our neighborhood by myself, walking multiple blocks away to go visit friends' houses. Back in those days, you, I told my mom, hey, I'm going over to so-and-so's house. And then she might ask, call me when you get there or be home by five, which was like eight or nine hours later. And that was kind of it. I really don't believe my mom spent a whole lot of time sitting at home wondering about my safety. But I just remember growing up a lot in ways where you were kind of on your own. You had to kind of deal with a lot of social situations. Maybe the day started out with a football game and then somebody got in an argument and then we all went swimming. And then after that, we, we played tag or hide and go seek. There was so much stuff that I lived on by myself. And I feel like a lot of how I grew up was that. But now I think about my own children and how if they go outside, either my wife or I kind of like to at least be near a window just to see them, even though they're in their yard. Not, we would never even allow them to go as far as I was allowed to go as a kid. They're allowed to go biking around a cul-de-sac that's 150 yards away from our house. And even then we start to see ourselves getting nervous. We, we recently moved and, and we both are really excited that we can now see fully into our backyard to see where our kids are. And yet all of these sorts of weird behaviors on us, I can only imagine how we're bringing them into our kids and are we gonna eventually cause them to feel a bunch of anxiety? I know the instinct there, your kids are a little younger than mine. In a way, Apple has saved us because the boys have Apple Watches, which they can use to make calls and text message. We have them put those on and they just go. And they'll be gone for four or five hours. They bike down a couple miles away to the river and they play in the river with their friends. They dig a hole, they catch a frog or a snake. They, other day, they biked up to Trader Joe's, which is almost two miles from our house and across two busy roads. And we didn't worry about them. I think it takes a little bit of courage as a parent to let them do that. While they were there, they didn't have enough money to buy everything they wanted, and they figured it out, which is a fantastic experience. But it's one that we have to have the courage to let our kids have. And part of this is we as parents are protecting ourselves. Because if our kids fail, we feel that we have failed as parents. So if we can do everything we can to let them help them not fail, then we don't feel as bad ourselves. So in a sense, when we're helping our kids, whether it's snow plowing or helicoptering as parents, we're just trying to protect our own feelings. And the article talked about that. I felt a little bit that way, too. The article does a great job talking about the parent experience. I'm not sure if this was something our parents felt back in the day, but my wife will talk about the idea of parenting, but also feeling like peers, friends, even people we don't even know that well might be judging us. And therefore, maybe that impacts how we parent our children. I'm always amazed. Things like soda. I drank pop all the time as a kid. And now, like, I can remember the first time our kid had, like, a Sprite in their hand, and we got, like, stressed out of, like, what does this mean? Is this the end of our kids' lives? Are they on the road to obesity? And yet everything feels so monumental sometimes. I mean, my child was eating corn pops this morning. I remember thinking, oh, like, this is sugar cereal. Like, bad job, Dad. But yet, is it possible we're just overthinking it? Or there's some sort of weird pressure that we all feel that isn't there, but yet we all feel is there? Yeah, I think we all want to be perfect. And I don't know if that's our generation or something else, but 
we want to do what we can to give our kids the best possibilities of what they can in their life, which is in a sense, the thing with parenting is it's better to have your kids do something than you do things. It feels better to have your kids do it than you do it. So I can look back at my athletic career, which had some highlights that I was very happy with, but I know my dad was just overjoyed with. And if my kids could do what I did or my wife did athletically, it would just be, I'd be over the moon. Watching your kids do something is ultimate coronation. And so that's why parents, I think, are so excited and they're so hesitant to let their kids fail. What if people think my kid's a little too overweight or not smart or not that athletic because they didn't make this basketball team? How will that make me feel? And it could be just how do I feel myself? And it could be how do people feel about me if this happens? The article does a great job of talking about sort of the next phase. So your kids are young, they're teenagers, but now the article also talks about this whole, what they call failure to launch generation. These are older teens, people in their young 20s. They can't hold down a job. They can't go to school because they're too stressed out. And they're just kind of living at home on their parents' dime. And parents are sort of beside themselves. They don't know how they got there. They don't know how they sort of created this. These are honestly good people. And yet they're like, how do we get there? And the article talks about something called space training. And as you were saying at the very beginning of this, the whole concept is letting kids start to take charge of their own lives. What I thought was really interesting is if you don't mind, I'd like to read you one more paragraph is they talk about space training in terms of it's these basically support groups where people talk about everything they've done for their kids since they were little. And I just want to read you a couple of these things here because I think you might kind of find it interesting. The paragraph says, here are some of the things over the course of space training I have heard parents doing to avoid setting off their anxious children. Going upstairs to get a child's backpack before school because the child is scared to be alone in any area of the house and the parent doesn't have time to argue about it. Driving a child to school because the child is frightened of the bus with the result that the mother is late to work every single day. Tying and retying a child's shoe until they feel just right. Spending 30 minutes a day on average checking and rechecking a child's homework. Announcing one's presence as one moves around the house that a child will at all times know where to find a parent. Accompanying a nine-year-old child to the toilet because he is afraid to be alone. Allowing a nine-year-old to accompany a parent to the toilet because he is afraid to be alone. Peeing in a bucket, a mother, not a child, because the basement playroom has no bathroom and the child is afraid to be alone. Allowing a child to sleep in the parent's bed, sitting or lying with the child while he falls asleep. Always carrying a plastic bag because the child is afraid she'll vomit. Cutting a 13-year-old's food because she's afraid of knives. Ceasing to have visitors because a child is intensely shy speaking for a child in restaurants, asking the child's teacher not to call on her in class, installing the My Friends app on a child's phone so that the child can track the parent's whereabouts, preparing different foods for a child because she won't eat what everyone else wants, buying a new burglar alarm, buying a new car, seriously contemplating buying a new house. And I just remember nodding my head because a couple of these things my wife and I are definitely guilty of definitely not peeing in a bucket in our basement yeah but you just said oh my god are my kids now scheduled to become these anxiety ridden teens we're all guilty of some of those and there's a there's a slippery slope there if I'm gonna make dinner I'm gonna ask people what they want and I'll be considerate my wife doesn't like cheese on her burrito so I'll make her cheese her burrito without cheese 
but that's not customizing the whole life to it. My younger son likes brown rice instead of white rice. Fine, I'll make rice two ways. I don't really care. That's not that hard. But if you're only making something, and you didn't read my favorite one from the article, which is the couple with the six-year-old child that have made turkey meatloaf 3,000 times, because it's all the kid eats at lunch and dinner is turkey meatloaf every single time. And That's these rough. things, it, it all echoes of the short run versus the long run. If you just want to get through today, if everything's about just getting through today, then you focus very much on the short run. And if you only focus on the short run, in the long run, you find yourself in an untenable situation. So if you just want to get to sleep, the article talks about the couple that has the kid that sleeps with them still, because the parents are exhausted. Like, I just want to go to sleep. What can I do to just make me go to sleep? And that is just let the kids sleep in their bed. So they do. And then inevitably, the kid's in there all the time, because the parents are just done at the end of the night but it's all short run and if we could just get through today if we could just get through today then we'll deal with the big issue tomorrow but every day is a new today and then you end up in the long run with a problem with kids that won't go upstairs on their own with kids that are don't want to see anybody and we found ourselves in a bit of a trap with some of these and having to consciously say like no we're going to do this or these people are coming over or we're going to these people's house you may not like the food, you may not be happy with hanging out with them, but it is what it is. In our sense, I don't think our parents thought about our well-being quite as much in that way, although certainly they loved us, in that I remember myself going to many parties when I was a kid and just being tossed to the wolves, like, here's some kids here, have fun. Like, I'm 14, I don't know anybody here. I feel awkward, and my wife has the same stories, but yet we find ourselves in these situations. And I think there is one more reason, if you'll let me go on for a little longer, and that is we as parents, we wanted to value every minute. I didn't want to miss anything. I didn't want to miss out by being gone or being doing this or that. And so I want to be present in everything. So I'll play basketball with you anytime you want if you're my kid. In the end, we've created a situation where my kids don't really want to play by themselves. They want to play with my wife and I. That's put them in a situation where they'll play with their friends, but they don't really want to play basketball by themselves. They want to play us. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do wonder if the pressure of modern parenting comes down to quantity, not always quality. There is this idea of, oh my God, I don't want to miss this, or I want to be a part of this. Therefore, you're right. If you're always there, it's hard for your kids to, to learn how to play by themselves sometimes. Or sometimes what my wife and I find is we get upset when our kids don't want to go away and play by themselves. This quarantine has really tested that sometimes. Do you think that parents today, because the article seems to point at this, and I, I always get careful when we say parents today have never felt more stressed, more rushed, more busy than, I guess, our parents or the generation before. And I remember my parents worked hard. Both of them had jobs and both of them were always busy. Both of them always made time for my sister and myself. But do you think parents today are busier or, or have more stress than other parents and that's somehow influencing the decisions they make for their kids? Well, the work days are growing longer and you don't never really leave work because the work can be on your phone and emails or text messages from your coworkers. And for that extent, you and I are very fortunate. We're teachers. And for the most part, when school ends, our day ends. But I have friends that are just on, I see them out there playing with their kids one year in an AirPod because they're in a work meeting all the time. And so we are fortunate in that, but I think work has grown. I also think that the travel sports is a huge problem in that we all get, people get caught up in doing travel sports with their kids. 
which means more practices farther away, driving them here and there, which makes the parents have less time for many things. And that makes them feel crunched from both ends. And yet you feel compelled to have your kids in these sports. Then the further part of that is with travel sports, there's less kids in the neighborhood to play with. There's a great kid two doors down, but he plays travel hockey and lacrosse. He's never home. And so my kids have less time to play with, so they look to me to play with them or my wife. That's a really good point. Travel sports has sort of produced its own sort of arms race. Once again, we say parents could be considered guilty of this of, hey, I want my child to be able to have the opportunity to play on the basketball or hockey or football team someday. Therefore, if I don't get them started in travel sports now, if I don't start getting them private lessons or strength and agility training now, and if I don't keep up with it, then we will kind of select ourselves out because the people that will be trying out for the team will have been doing all of these sports and all of these activities, and they will pass us. In a way, you could say that's our anxiety right there. Thinking 10 years down the road about what might or might not be available to our kids and it's not like we ever really asked our kids, hey, like, is this something you really want to go all in on? And let's face it, sometimes kids don't exactly know what they want. And so therefore, they kind of put their trust in us to say, if you want this 10 years from now, you need to begin the road now. And as we've seen, that kind of leads to burnout. But I do agree with what you're saying is we seem to pick a lot of stuff for our kids. And maybe we don't ask them enough about what is it they want. Or they're answering us with what they think we want to hear. Do you want to do this travel thing? We've invested 10 years into this thing. And so the kids feel compelled to say, yes, my sons know what I want to hear from them before I ask them. They just read me. And one of them will do it because he's such a kind, generous one. And the other kid will say, eh, he doesn't care what I want to hear. But I could easily see us falling into that. I do remember falling behind in baseball in like third grade. My sons did t-ball. I coached them despite the fact I knew nothing about t-ball or baseball. And then by third grade, my older son had been playing in a little league coach pitch thing and went to a tryout and he walked in in shorts and everybody had sliding pants on and he was quickly behind. And my wife was, who took him was like, how do we far but fall behind? And ultimately he was cool with that. He wanted to run more than he wanted to play baseball. So he played soccer and he ran around playing soccer for a while. And then after that, for a while, he decided to like basketball better. We're trying different sports. And then it's something that's easy to get caught up with the vanity. There's a moment that I absolutely love. My wife was standing there at a soccer game with my younger son, who at the time I think was in kindergarten or first grade. And he was playing like a rec soccer thing. And the coach came over and was like, Connor's got real skill. We really like him to try out for the travel team. And she just started laughing and like lost, almost fell over. She was laughing so hard. And she said, the only reason I can get him to come to practice is he gets to play football with his friends before and after. He doesn't even like this. And he shortly after stopped doing soccer. He just wasn't interested. And he's done different things. And he likes to run cross country, likes to play basketball in the driveway. I think it falls into our vanity. My wife has a great, great, great idea, which is that everybody has their time. For some people, their time is middle school, where they dominate everything, and they live the dream, and they're the glory of the middle school. For other people, they mature late. And for me, my time was in college, where I came into my own as an athlete. Perhaps if we realize that, you can say, maybe it's early, maybe it's late, maybe it's in a different thing, maybe it's fencing, who knows? But we could let ourselves open up and give kids more freedom and time. 
I really like that too about everybody has their time because you're talking about one of the greatest seventh grade basketball players in Traverse City history. Then everybody got taller than me and I couldn't dribble and it only went downhill. But you're right about the vanity thing too. I was thinking about how like when my daughter was three, we were taking her to like Tiny Todd Gymnastics. And I always remember they called us over. Hey, your daughter has potential. Would you like to sign up for three more classes a week? And it was like, no, I have to do her somersaults for her and like manipulate her body. Like she doesn't have potential, but I could see where they play right into that. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're doing something as parents. But one question I had is my kids are very flighty. Today, if I ask them, do you guys want to continue on with piano lessons? They both say no. The next day, if I said the same question, they both say yes. It's hard to really figure out what it is that they want to do because they're still young. Therefore, how do you balance that whole idea of let the kids make decisions with what if they just don't even know what it is they want? Yeah. And how could they make decisions at that age? You and I couldn't make a decision about everything we were going to do in our life at that time. I do remember my mom said in third grade, we asked you what you want to do with your life. And you said, be a garbage man because they don't have to go to school anymore. And here I am, a guy that's been in school forever, whether teaching or been in school. I'm here in 44, still going to school. And I hated school. But we don't really have to decide that young. But in sports, the idea that you have to commit young is just, it's silly. And ultimately, if you're going to make it and have the ability, as I've always said, if you have D1 talent, it will appear. People will find you. You will just be bigger, stronger, and faster, and just more desired than anybody else. It's not a bad thing that we don't have to commit at an early age. Trying to bring this to school, you and I are obviously educators. What do you think the teacher role in the rise of anxiety is? Do you think teachers should have a role? You and I might have a student that anxiety is preventing them from performing in our class or being able to take part in our class. Parents might have a feeling about how their student should be treated, which could be in direct conflict with how we think the student should be treated. How do you think schools should be navigating this or thinking about it? Well, I think the space program, I absolutely love that idea that, that you just have to accommodate them a little less, show confidence in them that they can handle it. You know, my son doesn't like spiders, doesn't like being upstairs on his own. Hey, you can do it. We know you can go upstairs on your own. We know you can handle it. And he goes upstairs on his own. And that's the kind of thing. I don't know if that's the teacher's position. You know, I've had students in class that are so anxious they can't, they don't come to school often. And I just tell them how much I enjoy having them there. Like, oh, we really missed you. We'd like to have you. And the kids around like, oh, yeah, we like it. So they feel like they're wanted and they're cared about. In this way, some of the anxiety things seem to make the situation worse. If you're given a 10 minute break every hour and then you take 20, then you're not even really in class that long. And it just creates more anxiety as you don't have to be there, don't have to tolerate. One of my wife's favorite sayings to the kids is learn to tolerate discomfort. And the article talks about this as well. Because if you can tolerate discomfort, you can handle situations that are unpleasant. Because if you do, there's a lot more in life for you. Do you think that teachers, administrators, schools, should we be the place that brings discomfort? Not necessarily on purpose, but if people feel discomfort, should we just continue operating in our way? Or do you think schools should operate more like you suggested a little bit earlier, where we're the place of positivity? We, we try to encourage and make students feel very welcome there. Or do you think we have a role of more tough love? I think it's easy for me to say, as a child of a college professor and librarian, to think schools should just be something you're uncomfortable with, but you get along with. 
I was dyslexic. I struggled learning to read. But at the same time, I had supportive, caring parents who told me school was important. I think for a lot of kids, school is much more of a anxious place because they're afraid because the people there aren't like the people at home. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe they're a different sexual identity. So that makes them more nervous. I don't think we should make it more nerve wracking or anxiety and producing, but we need to welcome kids in and say, yeah, this is tough. It's tough for all of us. We're going to make it through. Or many people struggle. Or if we say, hey, I was nervous too. It is something we have to welcome people and express that we have anxieties too. I'm anxious on the first day of school when I get new students. I don't know if they're going to think I'm funny or interesting, or if they're going to act out in a way that I don't can't or don't want to control. There's a paragraph that you shared with me that was your favorite paragraph. And I just want to kind of read this and you just sort of mentioned it, but it just said, in the end, one lesson we might derive from everything scientists and clinicians have learned about anxiety is this. If we want to prepare our kids for difficult times, we should let them fail at things now and allow them to encounter obstacles and to talk candidly about worrisome topics. You just mentioned the idea of every human has some anxieties about things, especially when things are new. Do you think we as schools do a good job talking about failure in terms of, you know, hey, this is how we all feel or it's okay to fail. Do you think we should be doing more of those kinds of discussions? We tried to read a book as a staff a couple of years ago about failure and resiliency. I thought it was an okay discussion. It went all right with my students. I'm not sure if we talk as enough as, as much as we can. We get a little bit ahead of ourselves and want to get right into the concepts that we're supposed to be teaching and don't really talk about resiliency as much. But also, I think you have to build a credibility with students before you can really dive into those deep topics. It is hard to talk about all those things. I just read a book about parenting adolescent boys. One of the things it says is just keep talking. Talk with them about everything. Talk to them about things that are uncomfortable. Use the appropriate terms to talk about those things and to have an ongoing discussion and to create a conversation. And maybe that's what we need to do here is have people keep talking about what's going on or how they feel. I like what you're saying. The word grit is something that's been thrown around the last half decade or so. And yet I feel like whenever people want to talk about grit, it's usually in a statement like, go get some grit, or you need more grit here. But I don't know if we really fully explain it to students or to adults, what does it mean to have grit? And I like that word you used about resiliency. The idea that maybe we don't talk enough about failure and who fails. Michael Jordan has some great quotes about just the number of times he's missed the game-winning shot and what he's learned from failure. Maybe we just always put up this perfect world that we live in where everybody just is always succeeding or that we only celebrate the winners and that we don't talk about failure being something natural and being something that we can learn a lot from it. And therefore, do you think that helps us in our rise of anxiety if we just don't talk about it enough? I think that certainly creates a situation where it can flourish. I wonder if social media and people's constant portrayal of perfection, we know that the, the phone is not necessarily bad or the text messages are not necessarily mad, but the constant creation of the idea of perfection, that people cultivate their Instagram or their Twitter or their Facebook to make them seem perfect makes other people all feel so imperfect. And that makes people feel that they're more uncomfortable or anxious. If we talk about it more, I think we'd be have a little bit more honest society. But do we really want to be that honest? Do we really want to talk about our qualities that are failing and what we struggle with? 
That's a really good point. There are not a lot of Instagram feeds where people just have spaghetti stains on their shirts. Their kids haven't taken a bath in three days. You know, their house is a wreck just because they've been busy or they've been living, right? And you're right. We don't even sort of just say, well, that's what real life is. And I think that you're right. That does bring that pressure that I think some people really talk about when it comes with their kids. This is another thing of mine. It represents me and it has to be perfect, even if that brings certain kind of damages to my kid in the long run. Ironically, perhaps the best thing against this is Snapchat because I don't Snapchat, but I've watched students do it and they don't take great pictures of themselves. They take ugly, silly pictures of themselves where they don't look very good. It's a bad angle or bad lighting and they send it back and forth to each other. Perhaps that's what they like about it is it's not perfection. It's just hey, I'm here, I'm reaching out to you, I'm engaged with you, but I'm not perfect, just like you. If there are any students listening, please contact us and give us this feedback. I wanna know if maybe we've hit Snapchat correctly because I too am not using it, but you could be very right. There is more of an informal nature, it seems like, with it. Maybe that's something that, that needs to be built on. You know why we don't use it? Why is that? You don't wanna see a picture of yourself and send it to other people because you have to realize what you really look like. And the same thing with me. In my mind, I'm 22. And if I take a look in the mirror, I think, oh, that's a balding man with wrinkles and sun splotches on his face. If I did Snapchat, I'd have to send that to you and be like, oh, gosh, look at me. I'd like to think I'm perfect. And oh, yeah, wait, I guess I'm not at all or ever was. The only thing I can, I guess, say for certain about Snapchat, it seems like students will forget to turn in an assignment, but they will not forget to keep up their Snapchat streaks or whatever. Hey, maybe we should set up a Snapchat account for all our students and we can send it out like, hey, here I am, turn in your work. It's okay to not look great. <laughs> I've got one final question for you here. I've always sort of been a believer that once something is out there in society, especially if the collective of society is behaving a certain way, so we have this rise in anxiety, this article seems to suggest giving students space, giving your kids places where they can fail, where they can make choices, but that's all just sort of advice. Do you think we as a population, as a civilization, can actually solve this issue? Or do you think the future is just inevitable. That means just more and more anxious people. Can you make any predictions about what you think the future looks like? Well, the first paragraph of the article was fairly dark. And it started off with how things are getting are bad and are getting worse. And I tend to disagree. I want to have the upbeat notion. I like President Obama said, if you could live any time in history, and in a moment you could be any there, but you couldn't decide your gender, sexual orientation, or religion where would you want to be? And the answer is right here, right now, because that's the best place it's ever been for most people, not necessarily for white men without a college degree, not necessarily for other people. But I think we're in a better situation and we're going to a better place. Maybe these issues have always been around. We just haven't talked about it. People are just felt burned and deep inside and unhappy and who knows? I'm hopeful that things are getting better and will continue to get better and we're being more honest with ourselves. That's a very good point. Is it possible that these have been issues that have always been there and we are finally bringing them to light, finally talking about them? And obviously, before you can solve a problem, you've got to admit that you've got one. And I, I like your optimism there. Well, Don, once again, a very 
nice conversation. I've learned a lot today, and I look forward to talking to you next week. If you are interested in finding this article, if you go to our show notes and the details, you will find this the link to this article, and it really is good. If you're a teacher, a parent, anybody that is around kids, read this. I think you'll find it fascinating. Agreed. All right. Thanks, Don. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.